Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And, most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today, Faith Vicinanza, coming to us from Southbury, Connecticut, where she is the inaugural Poet Laureate. And she's going to hold that office until 2025. Now, Faith is a multi-genre uh, artist, you might say. She's a poet, visual artist, photographer, and uh, has been a member of the performance group Mother Tongue. By day, she's a cybersecurity professional, woman of many talents. She's authored four poetry collections and is at work on several new books right now, including a memoir. She was active once upon a time in the poetry slam world. And so we'll talk about all kinds of things. So Faith, I'm so glad you're here. We worked it out. (laughs) Oh, Charlie, thank you so much for the invite. It's good to see you after so many years. Yeah, we first met maybe in the nineties uh, at the Geraldine Dodge Festival. So, uh, so Faith, you're the poet laureate. What uh, have any particular plans to uh, shake up Southbury? Um, I do. The one of the requirements when they were put out the open open call is they wanted people to say, you know, what is it that you would bring to the position. And I hadn't really thought about an overarching project yet, but I did um, advocate for making poetry. And really, this is what any poet laureate is expected to do, right, is to advocate for poetry, to bring poetry to the broader community rather than to an elite few. So the idea would be to um, develop and offer programs through the local library and through local schools. Um, the uh, One of the art galleries in town has already asked me to do a series of programs with them. So the things that I plan to in- include in general include writing workshops, how to perform, right? You know, how, how do you present your work? That's common um, for anybody who's taken their poetry to the stage, um, as well as um, embodying a poet, right? So when we say embody a poet, what I hope to do is a, a sort of like a favorite poet program. So embody Mary mm-hmm. Oliver, for instance, or in, embody Stanley Kunitz, for instance. Embody someone 
And I, in the old days when I was very active, I did that a number of times. I would take on a particular poet. I would study them. I'd learn a bunch of their poems. And then I would do a presentation. And I did one, you know, got to be 15 years ago, where I embodied Mary Oliver. And she's one of my all-time favorites. And, um, uh, you know, really introducing a larger audience to a poet that I admire, a poet that you know, should be, if not, isn't already recognized as influential and unique and and should be um, applauded for their talents. So, uh, but ultimately the the things that, uh, one of the things they look for is they want you to be able to leave a legacy, right? Whether you're the poet laureate of a small town, the poet laureate of a state, the idea is that some sort of legacy. So as a uh, as a legacy, I'd want to be able to create a space for somebody to come into this role in three years, as well as take on a project uh, where I would be looking to create an anthology. This is the pro- overarching project that I've decided on um, called um, Connecticut History Through Poetry and um, uh, put together a collection of poems that speak about the really a unique and interesting history. Connecticut has a lot of interesting history. That's very cool. Would you would you put out a call for paper poems on that subject? I will. Oh, and invite people you know, of course. I will. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Well, that'll be cool. That will yeah. certainly it will be a legacy. Yeah, there you go. And live behind you in the libraries of the state. That's what we hope. <laughs> All right. Performance. Now you were active in the poetry slam scene. And yes. uh, we were talking and you said you thought that you what you do now is influenced by the fact that you were active and went to the finals and all that on some teams uh, for the Poetry Slam. And people may not know much about the slam or they may not be too fond of it. And I like people to talk positively about the slam. So go for it. <laughs> right. Well, with any with any community, there's the upside and the downside. Right. Yeah. There's the light and the dark. So um, the I came to SLAM in 1992, which was really only two years after the first Nationals, right? The first Nationals was mm-hmm. in San Francisco. I think it was 1990. And um, it was really uh, fledgling and getting its legs under it. And um, there was a lot of high energy and you know, Mark Smith, of course, was at the forefront of generating this monster, um, which, um, you know, just grew like exponentially um, to where there were, you know, hundreds of of locations that you could go around the country and, and internationally, right? So in 1997, for instance, um, Michael Brown. So a, a little bit about the history, right? So it starts in Chicago and one of the original uh, masters of slam poetry, Patricia Smith and her husband, Michael Brown, moved to Boston. She takes a, a job at the Boston Globe and um, he ends up becoming a professor at a local college and they move and they bring the whole slam scene out, out to Boston. So the first first time I go to see a slam, it's um, a slam that was run by Tim Mason. And, you know, so we're going back, we're we're pulling up a lot of old names here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and 
it it was in Massachusetts. It was um, a little coffee house, and I forget what the name of the coffee house was, um, but it was Tim Mason's series. And he had Michael Brown and Patricia Smith there that night as guests. So then you also had Bob Holman, right, who was kicking it off at uh, the New Yorican in, yeah. in downtown New York. So you, you had these two m- mega sites starting up in the East Coast. And then, of course, the East Coast just took off um, and became uh, very, very active in the, in the slam community. So I... Um, was more involved initially as an organizer, but I eventually did actually uh, come to 1996 as a member of a slam team. 1997, I was a member of a slam team. And the thing is that um, I, I accept that there's a lesson to be learned, uh, I think, in terms of cadence in terms of rhythm in terms of the musicality of the poem right um almost like there's there's these three worlds there's poetry there's storytelling and then there's performance poetry and they they overlap in my opinion and um i love the moth i love to go to storytelling events and there's a similarity in terms of bringing the words to life inter- you know being in a connection with the audience but I would say that two key things that I really learned, and I was involved in SLAM for 10 years, was the immediacy that you want to bring because you've got an audience that's not looking at paper. They're listening to your voice. So you want to be able to connect with them. And it's important to uh, not lose them right? Not to be so over their head or so esoteric or so fragmented in your poetry that you lose that connection with the audience. And so sometimes it means that something on the page is a little bit more accessible. Something, I'm sorry, something on stage is a little bit more accessible. And that if you're going to then turn around and make that into a page poem, you might want to craft it a little more because, you know, too much craft doesn't always work on the stage. Yeah, and it's really uh, it's really helpful for a scene in a city, in a town, if people can see people who know how to present a poem well. Right. I mean, the delivery level in Chicago was quite high in general compared to other places I had been, because mm-hmm. wherever you went, there will be a few people at least who really knew how to put across a poem. They knew how to use their voice. They knew how to pause. They mm-hmm. just knew how to do it. Uh, and it, I, when if people see that, then they get the idea, oh, I could do it. If if folks are getting up there and droning away off of their manuscript, you know, mumbling into their manuscript, that's not going to give any new person any ideas of what to do with their poem. Well, and you, them, you know. Yeah. And as you know, Mark Smith has been quoted many times as saying the whole one of the primary premises behind slam poetry was to make poetry interesting to the general public. Yeah. Right. Um, and and to um, so I've and you make a good point, because I've been to see famous poets read who can't present. Yeah. Save their life. Um, yeah. But then you have someone like Billy Collins. You know, 
who's amazing on stage, right? <laughs> he knows what it means to perform the poem, even though he's not a performance poet. Well, you know what? We better hear a poem or two from you here. Uh, I could talk to you forever about this kind of thing. Folks, I hope you like hearing this history of poetry in the United States, because um, faith was there <laughs> at the beginning of the slam. Yeah, so, let's hear a poem of some sort. <laughs> uh, I sent you a couple of poems from uh, the full-length collection I'm working on called Breathe, which is all about family. And um, I sent you quite a few. So I don't expect that we're going to get to all of those. But I um, is there something that you favored or you just want me to pick one? Oh, you should pick. <laughs> you should pick. Um, so I'm going to do uh, something a little upbeat. It may not sound it at first, but um, so one of the advantages of any art form is that it becomes a uh, a life raft, right? Whether you're a painter or a poet or a musician, that the art becomes solace. It becomes a, a way to tether yourself when things are tenuous and you, you, you know, feel like you may be lost or you may, you know, um, sort of lose attachment. Um, so this is a poem about my first grandson, who's now 26 and um, very happy, very healthy. We just um, saw each other yesterday at a holiday dinner. Um, but this is, I was away at a writing conference um, when he was born and uh, the doctor said he wasn't going to live to the next day. And I was somewhere where I couldn't help. I was on the phone constantly with my son, keeping a, a tabs on what was going on. And uh, while I was away, I wrote this. Um, it's called, Your Father Says You Are Beautiful. Her tan legs, weary from the weight of you, now stretch to breaking as she heaves and trembles and turns in her pain. We wait the hours she pushes, strains to bear you incomplete. Your father will say, even after they open you sideways, far wider than you opened your mother, that you are beautiful. Your father, her lover, my son will say it again, again and again, intending you to life, to the living. It is an incantation meant to fill in the spaces where dreams should have gone, fill in the chasm in uncertain hearts, provide some relief from the scalpel-edged moment-to-moment considerations. We are all afraid Ivy tubes in and catheter out, your arched back aching for the seashell nook of your mother's arms, the familiar beat of your mother's heart replaced by the beat of machinery, while your father says, in early morning dim hospital room and in late hours, you are beautiful, you're beautiful, and you are you are. My poetry therapy friends will completely appreciate what you said about the solace of poetry. Yeah, that's that's a lovely poem. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, so the, the book 
that the full length book that's coming out called Breathe is all is almost all about finding um, a way to cope, right? So um, the the first chapter of the book is father. And then the other chapters include mother, brother, husband, and the final chapter is family. And the book goes from very dark to light, mm-hmm. but um, you know, along the way, it's a difficult journey. My brother took his life when he was 43. And, you know, um, I lost my husband uh, who who um, passed away 15 years ago from cancer. So these difficult times, I find for myself, and I think a lot of people do, um, I have to write my way through them. You know, so uh, I, for instance, I'll, I'll read one more uh, short piece. Um, mm-hmm. and this is from the first chapter of the book. Um, if I could just get back to where I was, there we go. So this is from the first chapter of the book, um, which is all about my father. So it has it has a series of poems in it. This is one of them. And it's called Refuge. And, and the idea here is that the, uh, you know, I work very hard not to be sentimental in my poems, just to say what's so, because I think that in saying what's so, the sentiment is um, is there. We don't have to uh, pump it up. We don't have to, you know. So um, the idea is that we simply need to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, in the first chapter, there's about half a dozen poems, and it's simply about telling the story. So uh, that's what I hope comes through, and this is one of the Um, pieces from the first chapter. It's called Refuge. Refuge, she thought. Haven. Four weeks on the island in winter. A respite, she thought. And from the upstairs bathroom, boot prints in the snow leading to a window that looks in on the kitchen. But she hasn't been out today. The snow is fresh. The boot prints fresher. It's a safe place, the owner assured her. This time of year, no one sets foot on the island unnoticed. But it isn't the ferry passengers she fears. It is the men already here. At the grocery store, post office, there is no calming her out here at the end of this snaking, rutted dirt road on this isolated six acres surrounded by stunted trees that sway and creak incessantly from persistent ocean winds. She phones the owner just before midnight. Why would someone be out here? Come, please take a look. Arriving, he finds her kitchen knife in hand, tells her it was just the meter man. There are footprints all up and down the laneway. It's a safe place. In the morning, She'll wake from a few hours of restless sleep, eyes swollen, stand outside in the cold, repeat a tired mantra. He's dead. He cannot hurt me. Whoa. 
that, you know, in the middle of that poem, those trees are really spooky. Mm-hmm. That really comes through. And it's just what you're saying. You know, you, it's the old show don't tell mantra, mm-hmm. you know, and those, those trees come across as very spooky to me. It's like, woo. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's interesting. I find that um, I'm not really good at trying to recreate a scene later. I, I have to write it in the moment uh, when when I'm feeling the emotion and then craft it later, right? Mm-hmm. And pull out um, the unnecessary stuff and just keep the core of the poem, right? Just, just the core story needs to be there. Yeah. yeah, that's got it. Do another poem. I'll do, I'll do, uh, Three short poems. Okay. Um, and they're uh, two of them are from the last chapter of the book called Family. And then one is from the chapter called Mother. So Angel is one of my grandchildren. And I raised him till he was eight years old. And I was constantly writing poems, you know, about him. He was um, he was really a, a, a saving grace because I was raising him after I lost my husband. Um, Angel, he is five, singing in a tub, brimming with bubbles, surrounded by super-duper heroes, both genders, some alien, some he fancies himself becoming, his voice a bright wish. And then this one is uh, one of the poems about my grandfather. Grandfather's peonies bend to the weight of overcrowded petals, soaked through with color, the air giddy with their scent. At 90, he tends to their petticoat pinks, pressed linen whites, pauses here, there, their dense perfection, heavy in his palm. He never minds the ants. So uh, for those listeners who are uh, gardeners, and especially if you are familiar with peonies, they tend to be uh, overrun with ants. Ants love peonies. And so anytime you pick a peony, if you're going to bring it in the house, you always have to look to see if you're bringing in a bunch of ants with it. But uh, <laughs> And then uh, uh, another short piece, and I don't generally write short pieces, um, uh, but this one's called Mother. Um, so Mother. We gather wild raspberries in late afternoon, your hands always ready to receive. Where the brook widens, water pools cool against the bank. How, after all these years, have we come to stand on the same side? So, you know, sometimes a short poem is is difficult to um, uh, as an oral poem, right? Because they tend mm-hmm. to be dense, they tend to be very finite in the imagery, and um, a listener may not always grasp a short yeah. poem in the first hearing of it. So uh, what I find often is if I uh, am part of a critique group and a short poem is offered up, 
it's very common that people will say, can we hear that a second time? And I think that's because short poems are a little more difficult. You know, they, they, um, they're over quickly and there isn't as much time for the story of them to resonate with the listener. Yeah. Yeah. It's an information processing uh, issue. Right. I, I mean, our limits. It's like, I think going to poetry readings, it's really challenging because someone's up there for a couple of minutes talking about Africa and the next person's up there talking about their shoelaces, you know, or who knows what. And so it's going from this topic to this topic all over the place. And you've got that much time to comprehend what's going on. So it's a, at least, you know, you notice with the folk singers, they'll do an evening of sea shanties or whatever. There'll be at least a thematic thing running through. And even when, if you do, if one of us does a poetry reading, we don't always do that with a reading so that there's not that extra continuity, which helps for keeping up with, well, keeping up with what's going on. Well, a pause, you know, a, a, a orchestrated pause between yeah. readers sure. would help. Yeah, yeah. And that happens, yeah. And that happens naturally in a critique group, not necessarily in an open mic. Well, that's true, because you stop and talk about it for a while before the next one mm -hmm. comes up. Oh, I remember. Yeah, you do workshops, right? I do. Yes, that's just that's something I like to ask people because you never know what they're going to say, which is, what, what's your, uh, like, the main advice you give someone who would like to write poetry or write better poetry? You know, you have a, a big one? Um, well, I'll tell you, um, I, 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 do, I would say there's a big one. The number of poets who come to a workshop who are novice, and that's not a critique, no. but uh, unfortunately what happens is they think that the first thing they write is the masterpiece, right? Yep. <laughs> when I have pieces that, and I've been writing since I was a kid, my first poem was published when I was in the third grade in the local newspaper, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. and I, and I used to say, and I didn't publish another poem for 40 years, but, um, you know, the biggest, I think the biggest thing for people to understand is everybody needs an editor. Stephen King needs an editor. Billy Collins needs an, everybody needs an editor. Nobody is, um, excused, you know, I have an editor and, uh, I, you know, um, you know, and I've worked with poets who have come to me with a manuscript and asked me to work with them. And it was their first collection. And, uh, it was a challenge for them to come to terms with, um, having their babies uh you know dissected essentially yeah that, that sounds like a, a good point it's like the idea of uh if we were learning a musical instrument instead of learning to write poetry how soon do you think you'd be any good i mean that's like, a you know and it takes a while and it takes a while with poetry too but because you've been speaking words all your life, it doesn't feel like it should take so long. Yeah, and it's interesting how many people 
how and I would have thought when I started that this wouldn't be common, but I am surprised over the years that it actually is common. Um, how many people think the minute they put it down is done? The minute they write it, it's done. Yeah. It's done. That's <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> so you know, there folks. We're not making fun of anybody. We're just making right. obser- making trying to make observations that may be so, useful to someone. Right. So one of the sections of the book Breathe is titled Husband. And the the book that I put out in 2008, and then I didn't put out another book for 13 years. The book that I put out in 2008 was titled Husband. And it was a collection of poems I wrote the year after, well, some uh, leading up to my husband's death, because we knew, and then the year following his death. And so I put together a theme collection called Husband. And when I then pulled that collection to have it as a chapter in this full length book, because that was a chapbook. book. Um, I edited a number of the poems and it, I used to submit my work all the time. So if a poem got into husband, you look in the back of that chapbook and you could see a dozen acknowledgements, meaning the poems were published somewhere. Yep. Then they were published in this collection. Now they're being published in this full length book. And I've edited a bunch of them <laughs> all these years. Sure. You know, I don't think I don't think we're ever done, right? I, yeah. We get better yeah. and better, and that you know, sometimes you can kill a good poem. Yeah, you do well, have yeah. to be careful. Well, why don't you finish us off with one more poem? Okay, so um, this is a poem from my uh, husband collection. It's called confession when i would lie jumbled across the length of you i pretended not to lean to the curve of sorrow's belly your hand on my knee your tongue in my mouth and then we would stumble or is it that i stumbled and nothing ever changed black always claiming to be something paler cherry blossom pink perhaps or simply yellow i do not miss holding myself apart a defense against your pointed intellect but I miss your wicked sense of humor. I do not miss wanting something more or thinking there was something more to be wanted. Please forgive me. I was forever too easily distracted by nothing. For this, it is too late to make amends. For the rest of everything that was broken between us, I forgive us both. Okay, thank you so much. I'm so glad we could do this, Faith. Really enjoyed talking to you and seeing you here on the screen after all these years. Oh, thank you. It's good to see you, and I'm honored to have been invited. Thank you. Well, folks, you've been listening to Poetry Spoken here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, our featured poet today, Faith Vichananza, and she is the Poet Laureate of Southbury, Connecticut. I'll be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. 
I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.